Hello and welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I am Azim Azhar, the curator of Exponential View. That intro jingle you just heard was composed by my son and I really hope you enjoyed it. Today's podcast is a recording of a private Exponential View salon held in London in May 2017. It's a panel discussion on the topic of hacking democracy. It was moderated by me, Azim Azhar, and our panellists were as follows. Carol Cadawalder, Guardian and Observer Journalist who has been breaking ground and unearthing the work of Cambridge Analytica, micro-targeting and the strange interventions of right-wing billionaires in American and British political processes. Professor Luciano Floridi, the Professor of Ethics of Information at Oxford University, whose 2014 book, The Infosphere, talks about how we are living in a world of mass information where the boundaries between online and offline disappear. Our third panellist is Harry Kunzru, a novelist and cultural commentator. Not only has he written highly acclaimed novels, but his short stories in journalism have appeared in many publications, including Wired magazine. He's currently braving it in Trump's America. And finally, we have Tom Lusmore, a digital government pioneer who's now helping renovate the co-op and reinvent the notion of collaborative companies. The panel runs for about 45 minutes and is followed by an interesting set of audience questions. I really hope you enjoy it. So on to tonight, Winston Churchill said this, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. And, and whatever you think of democracy, it's served us pretty well. And an increase in democracy is always uh, matched by an increase in GDP. And the Harvard economist Darren Asimoglu reckons that if a country switches from autocracy to democracy, it gets about a 20% higher GDP per capita over a 30-year period. And democracy seems to be quite infectious. The number of countries that were democracies was stuck at about 30 or 40 uh, for a really, really long time until the 80s. And then there was this upward leap, actually before the fall of the Berlin Wall, to this level of 89 countries out of a total of you know, 190 to 200 that are broadly democratic. And equally, the number of people who are living under democracy has increased significantly. So prior to the partition of India, it was about 300 million. Today, uh, it's about 4 billion. And if you think that 1.4 of those who are not are just in China alone, you can see quite how far it's come. But there's a yet about perhaps how we, we feel about this mechanism, because you know, at the end of 2016, research in lots of advanced economies, US and the UK included, showed that for those who are born in the late 1980s, they valued democracy much less than their elders and betters. Uh, but if you're my age, you've come to know that about millennials. And so today we're here to, to talk about hacking democracy because there's these recent exercises, 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 just an exercise in democracy uh, in the US and the UK have surprised us, you know, maybe by the results, but also by the way in which certain processes and activities manifested themselves. You wouldn't really think of using the word clandestine about British democracy until Carol started to put things together a few months ago. But we have witnessed something driven by underlying shifts in media and in technology, the expression of state power and cultural values and the big money that is moving into micro-targeting. And so we have these, these new behaviors manifesting themselves, the transition from broadcast media to social media to niche the use of micro-targeting to address niche voters in new ways, the interference of states, well, the interference of, of states in the democracies of wealthy countries. We've seen state interference in other democracies for a long time. 
perhaps a bypassing of electoral laws and the phenomenon of fake news. And these, the maturing of this information system has maybe closed our ability to have a discussion. So one question, I suppose an important part of tonight, is have these behaviors hacked our democracy and have they done it for better or for worse? But there's a second term to the word hacking, it's true meaning, which is the meaning that is not about the, the cyber and his balaclava on his computer, it, it's without malignant intent, it's the skilled expert figuring out a solution to a problem. Thomas Edison was a hacker, Steve Wozniak uh, was a hacker. So perhaps there's a second sense of the word hacking democracy, which is how might we solve the current issues that we, we might be facing and what comes next and what could we tweak? So we've got a fantastic panel tonight. I'll just briefly introduce them. So immediate left, we have Carol Cadwalder. Is that correct? Ish. Ish, how should I say it? <laughs> Cadwalder. Wow, yeah. You're close, you're in the you know, it's. I've struggled with the email address uh, many times. Journalist with the Observer or the Observer and Guardian? It's the Observer and Guardian. And Guardian. And of course, you've all read the pre-read, Carol's breaking ground on her analysis of Cambridge Analytica and micro-targeting and the strange interventions of right-wing billionaires. And to my right, we have Luciano Floridi, Professor of the Ethics of Information yeah, at Oxford University. His great 2014 book is over there for you. And then over here, Harry Kunzru, novelist, cultural commentator, <laughs> erstwhile student of... Jack of all trades. Jack of all trades. Harry, you went swimming today, so you can't hear very well in one ear. Which is why I'm at this end. Yeah, that's why you're at this end, yeah. And Harry, you're currently braving it in Trump's America, so well done for making it out, for and I hope you get back in. Uh, and finally... Uh, <laughs> it's not even funny. Yeah. Um, we have Tom Lusmore, who is a digital government pioneer. One of the many reasons why you can now file your VAT online and get your driving license online is because he had many sleepless nights for a decade, and he's now helping to renovate the co-op and look at new models of, of ownership. So first of all, I guess we'll get started. I've spoken way too much. Oh, I've forgotten one last thing. There is an internet thing going on tonight. If you look up there, there's slido.com and there's a little hashtag J038. If you would like to send in a question, you can do it that way. And actually, I wouldn't mind because it would be, you could shout, but I wouldn't mind because I'd love to see if this thing actually works. And then also we can ask the best questions first. So let's get started. Carol, what happened in the Trump and the Brexit campaigns that was, that was new and that might be something that we feel threatens our democracy? So I think one of the most frustrating things for me in terms of trying to research what happened during Brexit is that for most of it, there is absolutely no way of knowing. So what political ads were shown to which people, um, that's lost, that's gone forever, or at least it's in Facebook servers and they're not telling us. I've been trying to follow this money trail to see what the Leave campaign spent. It's incredibly difficult. There's all this stuff which happened offshore outside British jurisdiction. And again, actually, I could find out if Facebook chose to tell me, but they haven't. So there's all this knowledge and power is concentrated in the platform. They have the answers. They're not giving it to us. And the reason, actually, I want to segue forward immediately is because I've been incredibly frustrated because I cannot research. It's not open source. This stuff is lost. The advertisements that were shown, that's gone. That isn't archived anywhere. It's not transparent. We will never know unless Facebook chooses to tell us. But the reason why I kind of feel agitated is because this is actually, we're all sitting here tonight and it's all nice and lovely, but actually this is happening right now. So 
we are two weeks from an election, and at the weekend, the Independent asked all the political parties, can you show us your Facebook ads? Who are you sending what ads to? And the Conservative Party refused to say. So this is, we are living in a supposed democracy where parties have manifestos, which are supposed to be discussed openly. This is supposed to be public debate. And if they're saying something that should be on the record, they should be held to it. They shouldn't be targeting people. Who are they targeting? What are they saying to them? What? And we've got, that's in the dark. So it's, um, and I've had one amazing <coughs> campaigner who I've spoke to uh, yesterday who has been finding out what ads the Conservatives have been sending to people in marginal constituencies. And it's completely fascinating and really, really profoundly troubling. And I, we are sitting here discussing hacking democracy, but it's literally being hacked right now. It's being hacked right now. Luciano, do you agree with Carol? I do. I think there are a couple of points that support what she just said. First of all, as far as I know, we should have an institution here uh, that takes snapshots of the internet. As far as I know, Europe everywhere, every place in Europe has uh, that institution, apart from uh, Belgium and Italy. That's last time I checked. That's precisely because this recording is going as we speak. So the idea that all this data massively there is correct, what is incorrect is the fact that they stay there at any given time. They are very fragile. And we know, you know for example, in terms of uh, who has access to what just a few months later. So that's the first point. The second point is that uh, without that transparency, you actually imagine a table with three legs, and that's called trust. The three legs are you deliver something, so I can see that you are delivering it, say a policy. There's transparency, so not only you're delivering it, but I can see that you are delivering it. And there's accountability, so that if something goes wrong, I can see that it's going wrong, and maybe I vote for someone else next time. So, so of these three legs, delivering, transparency, accountability, we're really lacking a major component, which is the transparency. And once you have uh, a table without one leg, and there are only three, you know that it's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have in a very precarious <coughs> situation where one of the pillars of democracy is being undermined. Not willfully, I, I don't believe in big sort of projects of some dark force out there. As we move on, along, we make mistakes. And this is a mistake. <coughs> we, can, we can and should rectify it. Harry, you lived through Trump, the Trump election. Congratulations. What was it like? <laughs> Did you, does this ring, ring true? Well, I mean, I think I think I, I it, when it when it comes to how people experience the election, the siloing of that experience is really profound. I mean, it seems that there are now sort of parallel information universes. I mean, for a few years we've been talking about filter bubbles and the effects that that has on the idea of public space and on shared public space. But I think this is the first time we've really seen and practiced the the corrosive effect that has on democracy. And I, I mean, I think we're at a, at a sort of inflection point in terms of our public discourse globally. And the best analogy I can think of is the advent of um, high frequency trading and algorithmic uh, strategies of trading on financial markets a few years ago. I mean, suddenly there were possibilities of gaming trading systems that arose. And it took several years for regulatory systems to understand and to correct for things that people were doing, you know, flooding markets with fake signals, fake fake you know, mm -hmm. trades and various other other you know, trying to create latency for your opponents in, in a particular That's market. Awesome. And so 
you know, I hate the phrase, the phrase the marketplace of ideas, but in this case, let us, you know, I mean, we have a lot of actors and we have a public space in which people are trying to fight it out and that seems like a reasonably good analogy. And we have a totally new environment in that a lot of the previous gatekeepers have gone. You've got sort of disintermediation in, in that way. And you've got, you've got automation. And I think this is the thing that we really haven't grasped is that there are bots and that people can multiply their force within these networks by the use of fake accounts and by bots. It's possible to create the appearance of public opinion being shifted in a certain direction from your desktop. Mm -hmm. And now we don't currently have social structures that are even able to make that properly visible, let alone account for and compensate for that. And I think that's the lesson that we've learned with, you know, I mean, regardless of how conspiratorial one wants to get about Russians and the, and the American election, I think it's certainly clear that there have been actors in the information space that were using multiple fake accounts in order to circulate certain sorts of information. And that has had a profoundly to my mind, distorting effect on, on trust. I mean, that's what we are. It's not just transparency, it is trust. And it has corroded that very sort of important foundation for public discourse. Mm. Um, well, one reflection is we really shouldn't be surprised. Representative mass democracies really only existed for barely over 100 years. And in that time, we've only had one major, well, this is the second major transformation in the public realm, technologically. The first was broadcast on from print. You know, we had Hitler and Mussolini during that period. So if you think about it, uh, you know, we're not done so bad so far. And, you know, this is a fundamental shift in the nature of the public domain, which is right at the heart of having a representative democracy. More specifically, I think around the UK versus the US, I'm actually much more hopeful about the UK, notwithstanding some of the stuff that Caroline's uncovering. And that is fundamentally because one of the great weaknesses of the, UK, of the UK democratic system is also its greatest strength, which is it's not written down. Okay? So it's a very malleable and informal constitution when you look at it, as are many of the institutions that make up uh, the public realm in the UK. Now, what, what working inside government taught me was when situations get really critical, be that a war or suddenly a bunch of people grow up who can't stand rubbish internet services from the government, those institutions can move remarkably quickly to respond. Now, they haven't moved yet. I'm sure your conversations with the Electoral Commission are joyful. Uh, but I have more confidence in the UK that they will be able to adapt than maybe in other countries where things are more s and nailed down. A couple of final thoughts around uh, the area, that, uh, uh, specifically around micro-targeting. Number one, the lack of transparency. What does that do that's negative? Well, I think it does two things that are negative. One, it encourages negative campaigning with little consequence to those doing negative campaigning. Previously, the Lib Dems were forever sticking leaflets through the door locally which told lies about potentially challengeable statements about local oppositions, often in conflict in different parts of the country. So on one level, that's not new. But that was restrained, I think, by the fact that they occasionally got caught. Okay? And the second dimension that's new, I think, is that, again, around negative campaigning is the targeting now works well enough, with or without our friends doing supposedly clever stuff, just basic Facebook targeting. It's sophisticated enough for you as a political campaigner to be able to target enough people who will respond positively to negative messages about your opponents, and the opposite being 
you're not going to piss people off by targeting those who will be offended by the fact you're campaigning negatively. So the trade-off around those doing campaigns, to your point, I don't think there is a great big ogre up there, but the incentives on those running campaigns around going negative are definitely changed. And the system will have to adapt. It's up to us to adapt it. Luciano, you... Well, just for following this, I mean, you look at an avalanche and you, you can't claim that you know, every item in that avalanche has a responsibility. It happens, but there's no big plan and it's a disaster. On the disaster side, assume for a moment, and this is an academic talking, just for a moment, assume that Trump is a bad idea and Brexit is a bad idea. Assume for a moment. Suppose. <laughs> the, the reversibility of the two events in the next few years that's where I would really, really like to be optimistic, but I struggle to be because um, I agree on the flexibility and malleability of our own democracy here. Got a British passport two years ago, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, some, and I said, academic exercise, if something is wrong, you want to look at how reversible that wrong is. And, you know, those guys in the States, they're going to vote, what, in three years and a bit? Well, we've got midterms we, next year, we, so we're I mean, stuck. there's a, already a lot of shifting around yeah. the imminent And with Brexit, whether you like it or not, it's going to happen, and it's going to take forever if you want to be on the side of those who would like to see it reverse. It's not going to happen in any foreseeable future. So I like the optimism for the, the, the nature of democracy here, but some problems are sometimes irreversible. Carol. <laughs> So, Eugene, I just get really, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from, and it just really annoys me that I'm saying them because. That's why I'm here. <laughs> because my thing is, it's, I'm sort of furious because I've spent this time uncovering this evidence of what I believe are multiple laws which were broken. And in my eyes, it's like, are we, do we have rule of law in this country? Do we? I mean, are we, is, are we a democracy? Uh, do we have laws that we're supposed to sort of uphold? And if so, the fact that they weren't during the biggest constitutional change this country has had for however, whenever, that the fact that they weren't followed then, that apparently laws could have been broken, and we're just going to let that go, are we? You know, you prosecute the rioters for shoplifting the bottle of water, but subverting democracy is fine. We'll just, like, we'll just let that one lie, shall we? So... The thing is, is that I take exactly what you're saying, Tom, but the brilliant thing about kind of British democracy is also the most awful thing, which is that there's this passivity that everything's going to be fine with British, it's going to be, it's going to take chill pill, you know, it's like, don't worry. But actually, I'm not sure is that things are being, things, you, you talked about a point of inflection. What if we've already passed that one? Well, you know? that's the question, isn't it? It it's, might be useful drawing a distinction between the political culture here and the political culture in the US. I mean, here we have the, the remnants of social democracy, which is to say that we have a residual belief that there is such a thing as public space and shared uh, public goods, whereas America is very explicitly uh, on this you know, highly libertarian track, which doesn't essentially recognize group identities or shared, shared space in that way. It's easier in a context where you can point to the notion of the public and say this is something we wish to preserve and protect, to say things like we should have shared standards about the quality of information that is given to an electorate on which that we base a decision. And if I, you know, but if I was to say in an American context, you know, I think we should regulate in some way or some body should be involved in 
gatekeeping what we are counting as quality information being given to an electorate, that immediately maps onto people's ideas of censorship and it, it would, would appear as anti-democratic. You know, I'm like Carol, much less sanguine about the ability of the fuzzy British constitution to protect us in this situation. I think you know the example of the bottle of water versus the massive electoral fraud shows the limits of liberalism and its perspective. This is a situation where I think we are looking at you know high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, you know we, we're looking at a situation where potentially this important constitutional change has happened due to manipulation but it will be in the interests of the powers that be in order to let it drift on rather than to cause the, you know, rather than to make it visible and endure the disruption that it will take. So there is But isn't it always the case? Isn't it always the case when there's a constitutional change for the, for the better or for the worse that there's, there's some rule that needs to get broken. I mean, it's almost in the kind of mathematics of axioms, right? You want to change one of the axioms, you have to step outside the system, I think. I would agree in it. And this is, as I know. say, is the limits of liberalism is where it, the liberal perspective is, is to do with laws and rules and rather disregards the raw power that uh, goes into these situations. Well, I, I, and in this, in this I, situation, there are, there's one rule for the power, uh, one no, rule uh, for the... I, I would... <laughs> To be clear, I am anything but sanguine (laughs) (laughs) about the results. But the the point around campaign funding is just about the rule of law either being followed or not. That is binary. That's not really pertinent to exponential change, uh, I would argue. And I would agree with you. I think it's an absolute scandal. Uh, And I'm glad you've been chasing Dominic around the internet (laughs) like an absolute terrier. It's been joyful to watch. Thank you. I think the notion that we are at a tipping point, however, betrays our own agency, actually. I think, particularly in the UK, I recognise the US is different, and it scares me maybe because I'm not close to it, but it scares me much more than the UK. I do think that there has been, uh, and we, not least people in this room, have more power than we realise. The fear you will be generating will be heard far and wide beyond the people you are chasing on Twitter and in your articles to actually improve things. And unless you have that positive outlet that we do have agency to protect the core values of a liberal democracy, then we might as well give up and go home. And that really is my perspective. That simple. Why are we here having this conversation if we don't think we have some agency? I know, but sorry, just briefly, yeah, yeah, so let's say, what can we do? <laughs> so I put that to you. I've been trying. I've been trying my hardest. So. Well, we'll, we'll definitely. <laughs> I, I do have a sense in the specific question of election finance and what yeah. happens if that, you know, these uh, foreign actors are. But it's not just finance, it's data as well. So it's data. Well, I don't, I, yeah, I, my question is, what is the what is possible legal remedies? I don't see what the... It seems to be an unprecedented <laughs> situation, and it seems that... And I don't know what's possibly on well, the if table. You, if, if you take the second of Azim's points around hacking, or definitions of hacking, I've only just thought of this, so I'm making this up on the fly. You'd go after the board of the Electoral Commission like an absolute bunch of terriers and start to put them under pressure about not doing their job in a historical context. And you do that in a variety of different ways, you know, behind the scenes and over the top, you literally hack it. Luciano, yeah. Honestly, I don't think it will make any difference. Not because it's not important. I mean, remember, it's a philosophy talking. So, of course, truth, absolutely, above anything else. Does it make any difference to tomorrow to know that something in the past went deeply wrong, some people were absolutely wrong, they probably, you know, ill, Let's assume we even can prove that they did something utterly illegal. They pay, they, uh, maybe they lose their jobs. And how about the future? Is that, 
is going to make a difference in the future unless we either change the rules and make sure that it's more convenient to do the right thing rather than wrong or more painful to do the wrong rather than the right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unless we change what uh, mm -hmm. is valuable to pursue in terms of behavior when it comes to politics today for tomorrow, yeah. trust me, I really do believe <laughs> strongly, yeah, yeah. No, as in a professionally, in a sanguine way, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> no, we should pursue the truth at all costs, independently of any other extra value. Yes, chapter one. Chapter two, mm -hmm. <laughs> and what do we do about tomorrow so that this is not going to happen again? Right. <laughs> because if we... Well, it is uh, happening now. Oh, was exactly, that's the, so I think that there's a bit of um, intellectual, and you know, we talk about people around here, what we have seen in terms of distributed responsibility is that things were going kind of okay around the world. Berlin Wall was falling, South Africa was kind of okay, Clinton out there. Uh, so we can relax, you know, game over. But I mean, your data are scary. I mean, half of the places in the world are democratic, which means that the majority of places on this planet is not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you should be up and in arms to fight for democracy. No, it's like, oh, game done. Top. End that of history. End of history. Yeah. And that was exactly the point where we lost the fight because we lowered the guard and those who were punching had plenty of time mm -hmm. to do the possible damage. And no, Brexit was a classic example. Those who are doing punching, that's a challenge with being a liberal, right? You accept punches yeah. uh, a little bit. I wonder one question, though, for you, Luciano, which is that to what extent are we seeing, in a sense, are we focusing on the sort of Gavrilo Princip of this, the, what happened in Brexit and what happened with in the Trump elections? Or is it that because of the infosphere, as you, you call it, these sorts of tensions arise as an inevitability of these data-rich societies and data-rich systems. In this case, if you allow me the distinction between what, what's happening versus what should happen, no? <laughs> right. no, what, what is actually going on as opposed to what we would like, what we believe will be the right thing that should be happening, what is actually happening is that we're seeing what humanity, all of us, is made of. And um, we kill Socrates in Athens, we burn... Uh, Bruno in Rome, we you know, almost crucifies Galileo at, at a certain point, and on and on. I mean, that's humanity. Where have you been when you thought, you know, with Habermas, the public space, a conversation, everybody educated, an exchange of ideas. You say so, I say that. Conversation is an, an unquiet habit, the hard way. Shutting up when someone else talks, hardly ever does it, certainly in Italy. So <laughs> in that context, we need to realize once again that we are in the political animal, animal is times Roman 24 bold. Political is very small, almost invisible. You're dealing with animals. <laughs> and if they are animals, all of us, we are geared for fight. Yeah. Your tribe, my tribe, my team, your team. I'm a hooligan. I'll kill you because my team scored twice. <coughs> that is insane. But that's the world with which we're dealing. Yeah. Whereas you know, this population, so the infosphere is polluted. Yeah and we should be careful about what we're doing there. You talked about the public sphere in there as well, and, and I think we've seen something change in our, with this pollution, right? With, with fake news and with these tribal and group identities, perhaps not becoming so visible because maybe they're hidden within social networks, but how important is maintaining a functioning public sphere based on some shared truth in all of this? Well, I mean, I, I think the commensurability of people's realities is, is so important in this if we look at that and i say it's blue and you say it's red and i say on the basis of my 
belief system, it's blue, and you say on the basis of, uh, you know, of my context, it's red, then there's very little chance for us to agree, and then we just have to fight it out. Shared standards is a good kind of technical, you know, if we're thinking about hacking, I mean, this is what we are needing to develop is some sort of shared commensurable standards for what quality information might look like. And I, I mean, I shy away from the word truth because of its kind of loaded sort of quasi-theological context, but I think we need a way of distinguishing between sources that are widely trusted and sources that are not to be trusted. We, in the way that search engine algorithms will move things further up the rankings because of uh, numbers of other, you know, other agents who, mm -hmm. you know, who, who have trusted this particular piece of information. Who knows what the technical substrate of this would be, but imagine a situation where if I, if I see the story that says that the Democratic Party activist gave the emails to WikiLeaks and was murdered by Hillary Clinton with the candlestick in the, in the, in the library, yeah. I need to be able to see sort of visibly a sort of metadata on that, how many other people think that's true and who those people are and are they real people or are they all bots run from the Ukraine. That is an, an information environment which would give us several levels of, of mm -hmm. ways of checking trust and ways of decide, you know, you said my, my gang all believe this, your gang all believe that, and there's not very much crossover in that Venn diagram. Oh, any reflections on that? Well, I think actually, so to bring it back to your thing, which is the exponential view, is that what's become apparent to me is that the people who have all the money currently mm -hmm. and who are going to have more of the money are the ones who are gaming the system, essentially, now. And they, they're operating with the long view. They're understanding where the technology is taking us, and they're shoring up their power. And to shore up their power, they're gathering all the data they can now. And that's, there is an arms race on that way. Uh, I think our politicians and political parties completely, completely just carrying on as if it's just life is normal, and it's just like, it's 1953, and Anthony Eden's still wearing a suit and tie, and it's all we're all going to behave like gentlemen, and we'll figure out this kind of slight mess we've got ourselves into. And I think what is really apparent is that's why I kind of am doing the alarm bell. Actually, I don't think that is going to pan out that way. And I think that the people who've got the power now, the big Silicon Valley companies, I think they're going to have more of the power. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I think it's so alarming that Facebook... Uh, democracy is happening inside in the dark in Facebook right. and the information sphere is happening inside in the dark in Google's algorithm mm -hmm. and we have no access to that and there's no accountability and there's no political accountability and this I find extremely say that I, I mean, my own view is that the project on the right you know there's a very broad term is something to do with the end of public politics it will know, you know, that the idea of, of, of a shared open public space with transparency and the kind of uh, testing amongst the polis mm -hmm. is not something that people see as necessarily useful going forward, especially if you have a technical Silicon Valley perspective. Yeah, it's much I, more I, useful, yeah, I mean, useful I, and interesting for you and your bros to make tools, proprietary tools, <laughs> that you can keep inside your black box and get stuff done. And the definition of what getting stuff done would look like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the accumulation and aggregation of power and attention through the big West Coast oligopoly of attention is genuinely terrifying for a bunch of reasons. 
some of which are potentially temporary. I think our politicians will wake up, our regulators will wake up, whether they'll be affected, but they will wake up. What concerns me, though, is two things. One is the fact that this is now global. They are now operating globally. It is too late to really have much of a pullback on that. Europe's had a go kind of half-heartedly with regulating them at a scale that, that, that they would impact their activities. But what worries me more is to really, to sort of a, at an adjunct to Harry's point, what incentives are at play for those who run those businesses? And by run, I don't just mean those who are executives, but actually have concentrations of power and influence within them. It does worry me, particularly in the US, that I'm not sure that Peter Thiel gives much of a damn about democracy, no. actually, and has quite sophisticated arguments as to why he feels that way. And he has quite good techniques in terms of bringing down news organisations, and he's no friend of... Well, if you mine at the moment, for example, I can imagine. I can imagine. imagine. One of the projects that I'm very sad I never got off the ground at Channel Four was called was called Who Fears Who, which was a network map of literally Who Fears Who globally. If you were to draw that today, Peter Thiel would be pretty near the top. You know, Paul Dacre of of globally. Who who would be the one that everybody fears? Oh right, really? Uh, Well, if you think about it, really, most people in the UK. Who's the most feared person in the UK? Is probably Murdoch or. Or, or, or Dacre, right? The politicians are all scared of them. Yeah. Who do they fear? Well, they probably fear Facebook. And Peter Thiel is, you know, in the mix there. Mm. So I'd say, you know, Thiel not only just does not give a especially care about democracy, I would say that the, the innovation in, you know, in conversation in the last year or two is an explicitly anti-democratic project. You know, the demos as a mass, mm. as a mob, as a as a drag on the, the decision-making capabilities of an elite is now part of that conversation. I mean, you know, you, you and I sat at desks 20 years ago next to each other at, at Wired and listened to people like Louis Rossetto outlining what seemed to be a sort of outlandish libertarian perspective. Um, and now the idea, it's not just people paying lip service to some sort of notion of democracy as a public good, it's that they actively think that it is no longer useful or functional. And those of us who wish to have, to see some sort of mass participation in decision-making, and frankly, I mean, it comes down to sharing of resources, need to make a very active case for the continued utility of democracy as a, as a form. Can I just add um, a, a note of optimism for a moment, uh, which is um, an unusual business for philosophers, uh, which is, um, Normally, in the same conversation about these topics, you find these two lines of reasoning and often not <coughs> intersecting each other. One is political power is weak, corporate power is strong, and it's coming forward and becomes stronger and stronger. That's one line of reasoning. And then maybe after break, after a coffee, someone starts talking about regulations, and then someone in the room says, oh, my, oh no, no, regulations, are you joking? It will kill the whole industry. So just put the two things together for a moment. Mm-hmm. So someone somewhere has political power to kill a whole industry. That is a lot of power. But someone somewhere has corporate power to determine what elections, you know, where, how. So. so I have the impression that here, what we are also, what we need also to stress is that this space that we left uncharted for a couple of decades, which you know, infosphere, cyberspace, whatever you want to call it, was left empty by politics. Mm-hmm. And it was done, you can even pinpoint at when. I mean, when, when the Clinton administration decided, should we or should we not regulate the internet? And they decided, let's not regulate the internet, let's let it grow. It's a utility 
once it's there as a market, we will regulate. Exactly, mm-hmm. you now with ties and everything else. Well, the idea was, was a mistake. I don't think it was a calculated mistake, but it was a mistake in terms of thinking internet or anything else we have now uh, is just water, electricity, and gas. Mm-hmm. It's a utility. It isn't. Mm-hmm. It's a space in which we live. Mm-hmm. And once you start living in a space that someone else has mm-hmm. constructed for you and regulates for you, guess who makes the rules for you? Mm-hmm. So back to the other line of reasoning, you can also shape that, that space with one line in a piece of regulation or normative you know, uh, framework. Just one example so that you can think, you know, okay, well, that's, that's really insane. But during these meetings at night in Brussels, you start thinking, well, why, why don't you just issue a regulation that um, online advertisement is banned? Right. It's illegal. Online advertisement, as of today, at least on that side of the, no, the divide, is illegal. Well, I think Facebook would have a moment of uh, <laughs> not fear, and Google would just double think about it. They would have to invent a different model. We will become customers, no users. Blah, 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 blah. You have rights but there's, a there's, there's a, That's a very, I mean. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pause for a second here because we have 45 very smart people sitting opposite us as well. And I, I was just intrigued by this conversation of, of you know, is this the, the end of public politics because of these sort of libertarian tech bros in Silicon Valley? And if anybody wants to, has a perspective on that, they'd like I mean, to... Libertarian tech bros in Europe. Libertarian, well, I mean, <laughs> or either to agree or to, 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 to disagree with it. I'm happy, yeah, Jolyon, how about you? Joe Morm, I'm a, I'm a legal <laughs> agitator. I direct the Good Law Project. I mean, a few reflections. The first is that I think, I mean, we're right to be optimistic about, about the law. The law is supple, it's muscular, particularly in the UK, it's flexible, it grows, it develops as society changes. But we're wrong to be optimistic about regulators. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because what we have now, I think, is a kind of Trump loy kind of regulation. It's underfunded, it's staffed by people certainly led by people whose function is to deliver the appearance of regulation, to take punches to the nose um, without crying out to government, without complaining as to how, uh, why they are unable to act as regulators. So in effect, the function of organizations like the Electoral Commission, Companies House, if you're concerned about tax avoidance, HMRC, if you're concerned about tax avoidance, is to perform, don't want to be overdramatic, you might describe it as a kind of a fraud on the public. The fraud being that there is here a functioning regulatory system. How do you respond to that is the really interesting question. And I think you have to do it yourself. So you look to ways as a functioning, committed participant in a democratic society that you value to perform those regulatory functions. I don't think that looks like tackling the regulator, which after all isn't the principal actor. What you instead look to do is bring private prosecutions of uh, those funding um, Brexit, for example, illegally funding Brexit, or as I'm doing with Uber, you bring a case that challenges whether Uber is in fact paying or dodging um, its VAT liabilities. Through those kind of citizen-led dynamics, you can have an impact, even in the context of a rather broken regulatory system. I just wanted one, one last observation about Luciano's point. Will it make a difference? It will not make a difference on Brexit. 
because for a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, for a lawyer, um, Brexit is a non-event. It's a glorified opinion poll. The law cannot undo what the law does not recognize as having been done. The only thing that can undo that is, or the only sphere in which that can be undone, is the, the only sphere in which it exists, which is a political sphere. So you have to create a political environment in which Brexit becomes a thing which is impossible to do. And that's not impossible, um, and the law can help, but it's certainly not easy, and the law can't do it alone. Can I, I, just, I I'm delighted you've talked about regulators. Um, having I spent a year at Ofcom, which I won't get back with, with Mark, actually. Um, in, in, yeah, I was there before you, actually. I actually got paid, unlike you. Uh, I, was, I worked, I worked for Ofcom, Ofcom in 2007-8, and it was fascinating, because actually, I think if you were, to your point around were they actually effective or not, or was it a charade, I think if you sat in BT, having worked there for 30 years as a switch network, essentially pre-internet era business, Ofcom probably felt quite sharp. If you worked at ITV and they were regulating EPG positions even, even uh, which they were, Ofcom felt quite sharp. If you were Google, I remember Google came in, <laughs> Google came in and wheeled in Vince Cerf. And no one from, no one from Ofcom knew who he was. <laughs> so what we overplayed, we didn't need that weapon. We didn't even need to step in the building. And there's something around institutional reform here, is my, is my substantive point, rather than taking the piss out of Ofcom, which is I absolutely passionately believe we need new institutions of the public realm. And they are of the networked era. They are culturally and uh, organizationally, in terms of their reach to accountability, are of the internet. And we don't have any at the moment. And I think it is incumbent on us to basically make some bets and say, OK, company's house, reformable? Or do you just put some money into open corporates and hope that Chris Taggart, over a 20-year period, shows what an internet era global company's house should be? I put my money into Chris Taggart simply because the, the accountability model underpinning company's house means they, in an internet global era, are UK-focused. And that's probably not enough. Now, what I would say is there is some evidence in my personal experience that this can work. What I say is you don't necessarily always need new institutions to be set up. I look at Parliament itself, by which I mean the clerks, the people who run Parliament. And 15 years ago, they didn't even, it was impossible to find out how your MP voted. You had to literally read Hansard. Uh, and some friends of mine scraped Hansard and built They Work For You, which basically tells you in an internet era way how Parliament should be transparent about the activities of its MPs in an internet era. And if you look at Parliament in an internet era perspective today, you don't need their work for you. They kind of got there, having been shown another way. So again, I think it's down to us to show some of our institutions another way. I do think in some cases we're going to need some new ones. And, and certainly with the internet era ones, maybe the BBC, Bill. Yeah, so the, the crucial point is to make Parliament notice what they were, that you were doing, they blinked. They didn't stop it, they let it happen. They walked they away from the confrontation. They did. That, that's yeah. the last heckle. <laughs> First and last heckle. Remember that we can take questions up on that internet thing, slido.com hash jo38. I think Vince Surf is behind there manning the responses. I'll just see what we've got coming in. So we've got a question from Chris Lockie. Shouldn't we question 
the platform owners rather than the electoral commission. It's possible to place these ads because Facebook has weaponized attention. Carol, you've been, you know, annoying the electoral commission. Should you be annoying well, Facebook yeah, as well? I, I, yeah, completely. I kind of I've stayed off Facebook for for um, in my sites just because I had other things to to chase. But yes, I mean, um, to be honest with you. Do we need political adverts on Facebook? <laughs> if you can't see them, if nobody knows what they are, and if they're working in ways, if they're, you know, we, we've got examples of attack ads, but I mean, do, why not just ban them? I mean, there's a lot of people who disagree with me about that, but... Well, you could yeah. have, um, have them register first, somewhere, <clears throat> visible, by well, and then should... they are dishes out wherever. I mean, oh, the very least is that they should be, you know, it should be transparent, they should be archivable, academics yeah. should be able to look at them, we should be able to, the pub, they should be a car archived. Heckling, heckling, heckling rule. Has anyone, has anyone installed Who Targets Me? Well done, Jim, thank you. You should all install Who Targets Me, which is a Chrome extension that automatically allows you to say, I have been targeted with a political advert on Facebook and makes it into a transparent. Again, done by three or four geeks. There's a question from the floor over here. I'm uh, Mark, Mark Bunting, another uh, former Ofcom uh, re refugee and uh, independent policy uh, advisor. Just sort of linking a couple of the last two, two points together. I don't think we should give up on regulation, but I, I do think we need to think about regulation in a different way. And I think the Facebook political advertising example is a very, very good one. The, the relevant question for policymakers, it seems to me, is not can we ban a particular kind of content-related activity on a particular platform, because there's a number of difficulties with that. But I think it is the legitimate role of policymakers and regulators to say, what is Facebook's policy about political advertising? Is it going to put constraints around the way in which it enables people to exploit the opportunities that targeting presents? Do we have transparency about what that policy is? Has that policy been developed in a way which takes sufficient regard of broader public policy concerns that may not be relevant to, to Facebook's commercial objectives? Those are legitimate and important questions for regulators to find ways of asking. And I think we have a significant problem with our regulators that not only do they not necessarily have the capacity to ask those questions, most of them are very, very worried about having to, to grapple with them. And so I think to sort of loop back to Tom's point, finding ways for our regulators to develop both the political confidence, but also the capability to say to Facebook, not we're going to prevent you from doing this, but we are going to expect that in the way that you do it, you'll be transparent and accountable and give us some visibility of the impact of what you're doing. That, that is an important and legitimate thing for, for regulators to be doing. Get a reflection, we, yeah. Just a big comment on, on, on Mark's point. I think there's a, that's a very good way forward. It would help to know what kind of long-term strategy informs that sort of request. Uh, one thing that I think we might be lacking at the moment, but then again, you know, it's a big sort of abstract and long-term perspective, is what exactly is the human project here that we're building in this information society? And as long as it's just a little bit of individual consumerism, um, which is okay, uh, with a bit of freedom to do what you want, uh, that's okay too, uh, but it doesn't have a vision of where we want to go, then anything that turns into a, a regulation, it's a bit blind because at the end of the day, since you don't know what you really, really want, you can ask for a bit of everything just in case. Uh, and I think that that's the fear with um, you know, Facebook, Facebook or anyone else who will be there in the future. 
that unless you have a, a sense of the long-term gain, any tactical move at the moment may turn out to be even the one that you didn't want to have in the first place. In some of these areas, we do have clarity about the outcomes. You know, there are laws about political advertising. There are laws about you know, copyrighted material. There are laws about hate speech. So it is another massive challenge for regulators. But task, in a sense, is simple, which is how do you translate those objectives that are defined in our existing legal frameworks into outcomes that you can expect platforms to manage and optimize for? And, and how, how, do you, how, how do they trade off the kind of legitimate interest that we have in, in freedom of expression versus the sort of restraints that we're talking about here? So it, I agree with you that specifying what those outcomes are is tremendously important. But at least in some areas, we, we do have a bit of clarity about what the conceptual goals are. Carol, so did you want to? Well, no, it's just you, you're so reasonable. And, <laughs> and I think that's a really reasonable argument. And, um, but at the same time, at the same time, actually, the only way that anything is going to happen is if the public puts pressure on the platforms. And so we, we can't actually outsource this to kind of government to do or to... I've been, like, looking for the great saviour who's going to, like, charge in and go, it's OK, I've got this. We can... But it's actually not going to happen. And so this is where it's, it is just down to people getting annoyed about it. The fact is that you cannot have a free and fair election in this country at the moment. The whole level playing field has gone, and that's just a fact. So if we're okay with that, fine, let's just like slip into whatever's next, or people need to get angry about it and demand that something happens. Thank you. We're going to move it round. So if we go to Chris Locke, I'll get your name right this time. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks. It's interesting to see how Facebook has responded when there's been a strong regulatory push against it in, in, in other countries. And in particular, in the last year, their fight with the TARI, the regulator in India, around their Facebook Zero policy. The first thing they did was weaponize their user base. The first thing they did was went directly to actually what were a very series of cack-handed cultural and social messages for the audience to basically say, we, the poor Indian users, can't wait for Facebook to digitally liberate us all. Now, that failed partly because of a very well-organized civil society campaign against it, and ultimately the TRAI <coughs> went against Facebook. But actually, it only failed because Facebook were incredibly bad at judging the cultural and social mores of what they were doing and didn't understand India enough to create a viable political campaign. I'd have less confidence that they would make that mistake in the US and UK where they know the markets incredibly well. So I think, you know, regulating Facebook is one thing. Facebook's response by weaponizing its own audience against that regulation will be yet another thing again. This idea of weaponizing the audience is what Uber has done as well in a number of, a number of cases. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on that on here, or we can move it around? Double yeah. underline the idea of an audit trail as being one of the most important democratic tools that we have, and that seems something that's doable, that uh, does not seem like a big ask in terms of you know of being a, a, a great problem business-wise, and will actually allow us to sort of forensically find out what has happened in these uh, electoral situations. I, I think I'm going to challenge Carol's point around, around um, you know, it's up to the users of these platforms to respond. Well. <coughs> The users don't fund Facebook, the advertisers do. And I think the, there is an interesting question around what do you do to make the advertisers uncomfortable about their funding of Google and Facebook? Yeah. And, um, They're the weak underbelly. 
Well, yeah, but you've got Martin Sorrell. You've got, you got some aggregation of power there as well, and they're all very tight. Um, but that would be the weak, the weak point for me would be around that. Uh, I, um, I mean, do not underestimate, even in the UK, how cack-handed even the Ubers and Facebooks. They, Uber tried to hire me as their public policy person. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad they are. And kind of like... Yeah, absolutely. Right, we've got a question from the lady in texting in the blue, pin, it's Snapchatting. In, it's in my notes. Okay, sorry. Um, hi, my yourself, name is yeah. Stephanie Hare, and I first wanted to congratulate Carol because I think your coverage has been outstanding and a real public service. <laughs> but second, I'd like to challenge this room to answer this question. I'm both American and British, and I cannot help but notice that there's been a very different response to the suggestion of interference in the election in the United States and the Brexit referendum here. And I'm a citizen of both countries, and I'm quite amazed at how in the United States we have the FBI, the CIA, 17 intelligence agencies agree that that election was interfered with. I would like to know what the British intelligence agencies feel has happened with the referendum in this country. Both houses of Congress in the United States are conducting independent investigations into that electoral interference. What is happening in the House of Commons and the House of Lords in this country with suggestions that the Brexit referendum was interfered with? What is Jeremy Corman's position? What is Tim Farron's position? Why does Theresa May say nothing? We have a general election in this country on June 8th, and I have not heard a single major politician come out and even acknowledge your fantastic Go coverage. Much less say, I'm going to campaign on it. In the United States, every single congressman who just wants to make a name for his, him or herself would be wanting to just leverage you for their own egotistical purposes and get some press. Here, the liberal Democrats could campaign on it. They say nothing. Corbyn is busy making jam. He says nothing. In the United States, we have seen a special counsel appointed to be independent to investigate that. The ACLU is pushing that. Why is Britain so passive about something that is, this isn't something about four years. This is about a, a, a referendum that will change the destination of this country forever. And we do nothing. And everyone is looking around going, oh, it's really bad. But they're not I've doing got, anything I've about got, it. I've got a political so thesis. I want to know what's the difference I've between Americans and British when it comes to this simple question of someone has interfered in the most important votes of your generation. But we, what are we doing? <laughs> I mean, I've got... Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, I've got a thesis which I'm not sure holds, but it's a thesis that was put to me by quite a senior Labour, uh, a shadow minister, actually on exactly that point, which is why are they not you know, going, hey. Um, and it's this, which is a sad one. Uh, I think all politicians were really shocked after the referendum by the realization that notwithstanding that a lot of the a significant part of the campaigning was questionable, not least its funding, that regardless of that, they had misread the mood of the people who had given up on voting in general elections but voted in the referendum. They'd lost contact with their base in Labour Party speak. And uh, I think the Conservatives were pretty shocked as well. And it's uh, that there was a whole population out there that they had never even thought to talk to before who were activated to a message of leave. Um, and I think the shock of, on oh my word, we have misread the electorate for the last 20, 30 years. And it is, I'm afraid, around post-industrial towns and cities in the north.
and other areas of the UK. Again, regardless of the impact of some of the campaigning, that shock has just stunned everybody. And they feel there is, I think, a, a context and a wave uh, that they have to adapt to and adjust to and be a little bit humble to, uh, notwithstanding it's a once-in-a-generational shift uh, and daren't fight. Uh, and I think that's a tragedy. But that's what they, if you ask them, that's what some of the Labour and some Lib Dems will say as well. I think it would help to kind of revise a little bit that guy from, from Italy, Machiavelli. Basically, what would they gain by doing that? The, the politicians, I mean, what would they gain by say, finding taking, out the truth? What yeah, would be gained from finding out what actually happened? In terms happened? of being re elected uh, next time, in terms of uh, having a chance of being in a group <laughs> that looks at them and say, uh, look, now this is something that we did all together. We're all in together. So let's not make anything worse than is already happening. In a context where the sensation is that this is going to happen anyway. This is, there's nothing you can do about it but. So I have the impression, and I, look, I know everybody's smart here. It doesn't mean that when you say something, you endorse that something. All I'm saying is that picture seems to be perfectly credible in terms of no one raising a finger and saying, this is insane. We're going through the abyss. Because by the time we get there, they will have moved elsewhere. They will have different jobs. They will have uh, gained that political power that they needed. In other words, a more cynical view of the whole political game. And honestly, until we get to that bitter truth of how cynical and dirty the whole game is, we're going to have intellectual conversations mm -hmm. on how wonderful the world could be in a context where, for example, truth is taken seriously. Really? Are we still having that debate? Unless we start manipulating the opinion, public opinion, for the right means and ends, we're not going to go anywhere. Because the truth didn't speak out last time, it's not speaking out this time, it won't speak out next time. So I'm not convinced that just by showing people how things went and how things might be going now, it will make any difference. Look at Trump. I mean, it's still there. And uh, you know, we all knew that that is insane. Uh, <laughs> but it hasn't made any difference in terms of showing the lies, showing the insanity, showing the... the, the Did you already just say that the campaign is different from the United States? Those investigations are ongoing. There's a very good chance that he could be impeached. Okay. It didn't make a difference when they were voting. No? Yeah. No. It's been, it, it's been elected. Yeah? I mean, just in case anyone had you know, still... It's president of the United States, as we speak. End of the story. Next chapter, I'm happy to be proved wrong. What I'm saying is, can we start manipulating the public opinion properly? That's <coughs> what I'm saying. Let's read Machiavelli on record. Let's manipulate public opinion. Because they're doing it. I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. What a gentleman in the black shirt over there. Uh, hi there. Chris Michaels from the National Gallery. Um, I think we're running into a risk in this conversation of worrying about the past and not thinking and asking the questions about what happens in the future. Uh, if you remember your Hegel, Hegel says that philosophy of history is always too late to save the people who died from what happened. And we're kind of talking about this, this technology of micro-targeting, which was a moment in time that we all missed. The Republicans missed it in America. I had uh, dinner with the guy who used to run digital marketing for the Republican Party last year before Trump, and he missed the fact that this was happening. He didn't understand that micro-targeting was happening. So I think there's two questions we, we ought to think about from this. One is, when should we, if we look back, have asked the questions that we're asking tonight? When actually did this happen that we could have stopped in the first place? And two is, if micro-targeting is what caused, we think there's partially a, a, an attribution for what causes Brexit and what causes Trump, 
what is the technology that ha that causes, slightly to take Luciano's point, the next bad thing that's going to happen down the line? And how do we get ahead of that discussion so that we can start actually making the changes now? Because deep regulating backwards into micro-targeting ads is like regulating backwards into uh, to, uh, regulating TV ads. It's already too late to have done that. What Facebook do will move to the next step and keep moving to the next step so that you have to get ahead of that question to keep actually rehacking democracy backwards. Right. Can I can I take that question, which I love, and twist it slightly to say, what can we do to get better outcomes? So rather than the insurance model of let's avoid another couple of car crashes, how can we actually go off and have a really pleasant journey to a new sunlit upland, given that there are these new technologies? Uh, in place. Anyone fancy taking that on in my scene? You're I'll, I'll do it quickly. veteran optimist. No, uh, well, I think there's, very there's one very, very, very simple, clear thing that we should all demand and, and find gameable ways of making sure our demands are, uh, have a greater chance of being met, which is algorithmic transparency in general, which I think, to your very wise point, is very broadly applicable uh, as, as a potential means of giving us some hope of dealing with otherwise potentially very negative outcomes, uh, not least machine. Some of them, you know, machine learning. Okay, next. <laughs> we all want to go. Yeah. Okay. So we've just got to get over the liberal guilt, which is that, oh, these bad things, you know, Brexit happened because people weren't paying attention to what was happening in, you know, in Ebervale. And that is true. But, you know, that, that, that is notwithstanding the fact that actually... We, you know, do we, we do it? It's just not enough to say, oh, that's the will of the people. If we're saying that actually laws were broken and things happened and there were subversive actors at work. And it's just that this kind of liberal guilt, which I think is really true, is a, a real problem. So, this is why I think we need to rebrand the whole Brexit thing. I think Brexit's the wrong word, it's got to go. We need a new one, it's more like Brentry, which is like we're entering into the new Trump. So I don't know what is it. It's um, but we're entering, we you know we we're we're actually entering into permanent alignment with Trump's America, and that is the fact of what is going on, <coughs> and and I think that's the thing that people sort of we need to sort of just change the terms of the discourse and we need to change the language around it, and um, I think Ramoning and Brexit they're just like give it up, just forget it. I mean people are just I'm not a Ramona. Actually, I just believe in the law. So I think that uh, when, when you face power of a different kind, you really have only a couple of strategies because that power is coming to your place. No? So that power, whatever will be today, tomorrow, you know, that corporate sort of um, digital power, either you exercise your own power and show to that power who the master is, and that's called regulations, law, new framework. And that ability is there. I mean, we, we can do it. Or, and it's an inclusive or for the logicians, <laughs> and or, you bring them on your side. You say, okay, you are powerful. I may not be willing to exercise my power to restrain you, but I want your power on my side. And therefore, you bring the Facebook, the Google, and on your side. You show them man, that this kind of democracy stinks for them too, as well. And therefore, no, it's much better to move in a different direction. But I can't see anything changing in terms of uh, ignore that there's uh, that big power there because it's there and pretend that the internal power will you not know, bottom up in a sort of democratic way in an enlightened way of tens of millions of people would not even dream about voting for Le Pen really would be she around the corner more than 10 million people in France 
voted for a fascist party. Well, surely, you know, it's time to come to reckon what are we going to do with this external power that is breaking into the game. And I don't see any other attempt. I mean, there are several things to say. I mean, firstly, yeah, again and again, transparency is going to save us a, a lot of, a, a lot of, from a lot of this. Secondly, I think there's actually a business case to be made to these platforms that the degradation of the information environment is a bad thing for them. You make it bad too. <laughs> they want a certain, they, if they're going to provide us our, our public space and our information space, it is in their interests and in their corporate interests to, to make that work for us, for the things we want to do. I think in terms of, in terms of a sort of, you know, a sense of, of apathy and, I mean, I've, I've you know, I, I am mystified by what happened in Brexit because I wasn't really around for the campaign and it seems bizarre to me how poorly the case was made for... I mean, if I, I imagine, you know, it seems to me that I imagine if, if you said, well, if we vote to leave, we have to go, we have to spend all this money and we have to go through all these appalling kind of, you know, di disruption, you know, do you want that? Most people have said, well, no, I'd rather stay the same, thank you. Uh, and somehow that case wasn't made. but. There is, a, there is a sense of apathy and a sense of powerlessness and confusion at the moment. I mean, that's certainly in the political class, but also, I think, amongst the public. And that has something to do with the, the degradation of our information environment and that people genuinely aren't certain mm -hmm. what it means when, a, when somebody promises you that £350 million is going to be spent on something or other. People don't know how to believe it. Certainly I'm, I'm just in, the, in the US, yeah. that is, we're now in a situation where one can assert obvious counterfactuals, and it has, and it's politically, used, you know, possible to do that and useful to you to do that. I, I'm going to step off my moderator's chair for a second uh, and uh, just play the role of a Silicon Valley dominant monopoly here, because there's this notion <laughs> that uh, there's this notion that we can perhaps motivate them to act in ways other than that other than which they, they need to act but I think we miss and maybe Kevin you may have something to say knowing these uh, these companies a little bit as well but don't feel on the spot um, I, I feel we miss the yawning gap in the political culture between where we are now and how people think over there uh, back in December I, I went and I gave a talk in San Francisco and, and I talked through many of the arguments around the problems of inequality or the, no, the impact of inequality shifting and going back to levels not seen since the 20s. Uh, I talked about the challenge of adjustment costs when people lose their jobs and people left the room as I was speaking. Group 120 people, founders, VCs, lot, they left the room because what I was saying to them was so, so alien. And, and if you put yourselves in, in the head of somebody whose political theory has only gone as far as reading the Clift's notes on, of the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, you'll, 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 understand, you'll understand it. You don't believe that this is a bad thing because this thing called progress, as defined in that way, solves all the problems. Now, I wish I really had sort of, you know, Peter Thiel or uh, someone here to, to make that case, but maybe not. But I mean, Kevin, do you have any perspectives? To, to add, as I don't want to make you the, the American, the other American in the room, but you know the companies very well. You know how they operate. Well, it comes back to your, your concept of hacking democracy. And uh, most of the people in that role in the Valley 
think of politics as it's, it's just the substrate. It's, 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 it can only be bad for them, and they would rather it just sort of go away and they do their thing. Uh, the ones who are successful, both for good and for ill, are the ones who figure out ways to hack it. And so that's, you know, the, the Peter Thiels, that's also the Mercers and, and you know, the, the Koch brothers, frankly, figured out ways to hack democracy for evil. Um, but companies like Google were very successful on Facebook, so instead in hacking it in positive ways or ways to achieve their agenda. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you, you can't expect people who are sitting there working 16 hours a day trying to change the world, building some new technology to suddenly get some political consciousness, that's, that's not their function. But they respond to what's in the culture, they respond to what's in the rest of the world. Um, and yeah, we've just got so many problems, it's, it's easy to sort of you know, attack them and say, if only you were different, that things would be better. They're going to be responsive. And actually, think, you know, th there are strange signals coming out of the US that things are changing. So, Last week, Marsha Blackburn, who was one of the most conservative, right-wing, crazy members of the House of Representatives, runs the uh, Communications and Technology Subcommittee of the House, introduced a privacy bill mandating opt-in rules for privacy collection, not just for personal information, but for browser history and location data, not just for the broadband companies, but for Google and Facebook and all of those uh, platforms. Uh, probably won't pass. But something is going on. If someone like that, who normally would be the, you know, the biggest opponent of any kind of regulation, now is seeing that actually that's a political winner. So there is some hope, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's got to be in the air. You can't just sort of say to one person. But, can I quickly hop in and ask well, what your perspective on net neutrality is? I mean, we've had this two to one vote, and Ajit Pai is in there, who's a creature of the, of the telcos. And uh, how do you see that one playing out? Uh, well, let, let's get some beer afterwards. I'll have yeah, a longer okay. conversation. Uh, <laughs> we've been fighting over net neutrality in the U.S. for more than 10 years. Uh, we all thought we were done. We're going to be fighting over it for the next 10 years at least. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Tom, uh, you had a. I'm just, again, I'm, I'm you know, heartened by everyone's desire to look to the future. Uh, and and what, can we, what do we have agency to change to, to sort of hack democracy to keep it alive? And. One thought struck me uh, with a wave of liberal guilt, which is when you look at those who pass legislation in the UK and the US, it's a very sort of glib thing to say that none of them understand the internet, but none of them understand the internet. And I wonder why none of us in this room has stood for parliament and whether that's maybe uh, a positive means of going forward to say, there is genuinely a problem with the literacy at this moment in time of those who legislate for us. Um, and is incumbent upon us, maybe those who do, to, 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 to stand. Now that means holding your nose. In, uh, why have you never stood as him? That's a longer conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just after the beer. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good line. Actually, can I so, yeah. just, I think one of the interesting things I found is that there's also this way that this sort of conversation about technology has really been kept for people who understand technology. Mm -hmm. And as an outsider with an English degree who struggles to turn on my laptop, it's that, um, I, you know, I, I was never qualified to be in this space. And that's been pointed out to me repeatedly. <laughs> and and, and they're, right, they're, they're true. But then I was like, hang on. But actually, this is kind of too important to be left mm -hmm. to the te technical people and the technology journalists and the, 
And I, I sort of feel that everybody needs to get on board that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's that opening, opening out the subject and being less protective about it is really important. We've got a couple of questions. So first, Jim, and oh, just yeah, do an intro as well. Uh, James Flint, I'm an author and uh, wannabe entrepreneur. Um, um, so um, I, I'm, it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, you know, uh, well done, everybody. I, it's really very interesting. I think that you know, what we're getting to here is, it seems to me, is, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's a reframing of what's really quite an old problem and, and it's quite interesting the discussion about uh, about why isn't Parliament doing anything and how what we're seeing here is you know this sort of technology angle impacting with quite a, a traditional way of you know, that British po politics gets manipulated by power, which is by the discarding of parliamentary sovereignty. I mean, we've seen a kind of classic move in Parliament after the Brexit vote, which, as has been pointed out, actually has no legal basis. You know, uh, th th there was there was actually no legal reason to recognise it, uh, but. A, a bunch of people collaborated with the Daily Mail and, and the Murdochs to, you know, take over, uh, you know, the, the sort of voice of Parliament at that point and move forward in a way that just sort of sidelined the debate. And as, you, as people have sort of pointed out, a lot of parliamentarians have sort of gone along with it in quite a passive manner. This has happened many times before in Britain. Just as we've seen fake news many times before, I mean, Tom made the, 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 the parallel with, you know, the, the Second World War and Mussolini and Hitler, but you know, fake news used to be the, you know, was, is, is very similar to what the tabloids have done for many, many years. We've seen fake news, we've seen targeting, we've just seen it in a different scale. Um, and we saw Obama do it when he won the election, and we all loved it because he was so great at social media, right? When he did it, it was, oh, he's a genius at social media, he's won, because he was, a, you know, he was on our side. So I, I think that you know, we, we see these moves, these moves happen, and we, we've seen a new move in the game. We're on the wrong side of it, but there are techniques. We learn the game, we get better at it, next time we win. You know, and we're doing it in a context. It's not just technology, it's also systems of power at national level, systems of power at international level. You know, the Brexit vote took place in a context that was very manipulated by Russia, bombing Syria, pushing refugees into Europe, creating chaos in Europe. People got upset. They, you know, they became anti-refugee Brexit vote. I mean, you know, this was a manipulated situation. Also seeing people <coughs> losing their jobs, worried about their pay. You know, Uber's sort of moved to return us to a kind of feudal system run by algorithms. And I think what, we, what has been outlined tonight is that there is an arms race going on that on the one hand, there are people with power trying to algorithmically manipulate us on many levels. And on the other, there's a fight for transparency. This is a very old battle. You know, it's a battle that we're always fighting in democracy. And the answer to the question, I think Tom, Tom's solution is the best one. We just have to find network techniques that are adequate to a globalized information space of the kind we haven't seen before, but the battle is the same. You know, it's about finding techniques for transparency and, and, and using them and deploying them. Thank you, Jim. Any, I'm going to get to the question, please. Uh, yes, uh, would you introduce yourself as well? My name is Azoda. I've just founded a data consultancy, The Good Insight. Uh, previously worked in various media companies. And I know as an insider that targeting on Facebook, micro-targeting, programmatic advertising happens all the time. So commercial companies pour billions of pounds and Facebook and Google now account for over 90% of all digital advertising spend. So this is nothing new. It's been going on for 10 years. But what's uh, different, and that, that's going back to the dual citizen of the United States and 
written question is that if Unilever peddles fake advertising on Facebook, Procter & Gamble is going to raise its hand and is going to say, hang on a minute, this is wrong, refer it to the Advertising Standards Authority. What we have is a democratic deficit in the fact that the opposition has completely collapsed. Opposition to Brexit has collapsed, and that's the difference with the United States, because Democrats are still very strong. Whereas here, and um, obviously Labour has been weakened, the anti-Brexit MPs within Labour are a minority, and then Green Party and Liberal Democrats are, what, nine MPs together? So we just don't have enough of the opposition. And my question is this. So if some of the brightest minds, including this room, in data, in product, uh, thinkers, philosophers, journalists, are liberals and progressives, why can't we create a, an opposition? So a counter engine which would target, utilize mining, you know, crowdfund or what have you, um, to put and use the same ocean techniques, personality targeting. Mm -hmm. It's not illegal to actually uh, communicate progressive fact-based messages to people or stories, journalist stories, you know, Carol's articles, for instance, mm -hmm. which are brilliant, especially for a, an English graduate. <laughs> uh, so is it because we are, as progressives, we're too nuanced, so we can't agree, you know, the progressive alliance has collapsed? Um, we can't agree on small differences. Mm -hmm. Is it the money that big money is not in it, or what? What is the kind of what is the issue? Why can't we just get so, together and create an opposition? So, so, yeah. So, why won't we trade our horses in for nice tanks, Luciano? It, it, it never, it never worked. It won't work. That's not us. That's not the anthropology we have learned from millennial human history. Your average voter is a smoking gambler. Is someone who goes into a shop and with the same banknote buys a packet of cigarettes, sure damage, and a lottery ticket, never knowing the future. So what you have to do to convince that smoking gambler to vote for the right party is to say, the present is rubbish, the future is bright. And if you are Clinton the lady and you do the opposite, the present is fantastic, the future, if you vote with that guy is gonna be rubbish, you lose the elections. So next time we want to win the election, and not have an intellectual debate, because I have plenty of that back home. No. And we really want to win the election. Let's stop thinking that educating anybody is going to make any difference whatsoever, because we will be a million people. You know how many people read The Economist? No. Is that about a million people? A million and a half? It's a bit more than that now. Yeah. Still about that Two bit. million? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But still yeah. not. That's, that's not the 10 million in France who voted for Le Pen. So I'm with you 100%. I wish education made a difference. I wish we know. Well, if, if I tell you what makes me nervous about that uh, is the point I made right at the start in that uh, cost-free negative micro-campaigning beats positive campaigning. 
And so, you know, if you're really going to be Machiavellian and not give a damn, you would go big negative versus negative and try and outcompete mm-hmm. with lies. And, um, and the future is bright. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and what's the cost of that, though, in mm-hmm. the long term? That really worries me. So uh, I'm glad we haven't seen a huge amount of that. But it is a rational response if you really don't believe that long-term trust in the democratic process is a thing to care about. I don't think a positive message is going to be negative if the negative is cost-free, right. sadly. We, we are starting to run short of time, so I'll take a few more questions. There's a lady there, and then next to her, the gentleman with the beard. So start with the lady. Just introduce yourself, if you can. Many thanks, uh, and thank you for great contributions. Uh, my name is Kat Tully. Um, I'm from the School of International Futures, and I find this question around whether we've been here before and whether power is fungible and it just expresses itself in new domains um, a really interesting question. And I think that the political challenge facing the system, in particular the legislature and the executive and the regulators, that the issue is, is that this is happening simultaneously with a lot of emerging tech hitting the policy space. So this cannot be seen in isolation to issues around gene editing, concerns around how AI is going to affect work and skills, (coughs) issues around climate crises affecting us so there's going to be high returns to autocracy potentially as people start working and dealing with um, insufficient resources, (coughs) needing rationing, needing to control issues around conflict. So, So this is the kind of issue that our current political system is in under. And this is why the second view of hacking democracy, i.e. it needs to be the solution. Um, That's where I think there's most opportunity. So A, how do you use these platforms to get new evidence? And I think what David Snowden's doing with uh, SenseMaker and Carnarvon is very interesting in terms of stitching together narratives from genuine networks. So A, how do you get good evidence using these networks? And B, what does good online but also locally based community politics looks like? And I think those are the kind of conversations that, that are a kind of perhaps a proactive and more positive spin on, on how to resolve some of these issues. Thank you. Anyone want to come back on that point, Tom? I mean, I do think there's an interesting conversation around how do you re-energise uh, a local representative with assuming geography is still the right lens and of granularity, which I think it is. Um, and I do think, I think there is more hope locally around uh, representatives finding better ways to represent uh, a handful of local councils, councillors really behaving in visibly transparently different ways because of engagement in, in, in networks. Um, I, I think there is a tension there though with the first past the post system in the UK uh, and the inbuilt advantage that grants to a handful of parties and the notion of a party as a vehicle for uh, a broad coalition of those hungry for power. Okay, so just a brief couple of questions, if you can keep your questions brief so we can get quick answers back. Gentlemen, next door. Yep. Uh, good evening, uh, my name is Andy, I don't know if this will be a brief question, I'll try to make it briefer. Um, I actually work as a software engineer at a company called Memrise, so um, my perspective is more technological than maybe political, but I just want to bring some of this um, I guess passion for technology that I see uh, as uh, I'm biased towards seeing it applicable to some ideas in technology uh, in politics, pardon. And it seems that the the whole idea here is very asymmetrical, uh, fighting 
call it exponential technology versus something that is still very traditional. We vote based on more or less left-right spectrum with some variations in between. We vote on regional issues uh, compared to global issues of the internet and um, uh, etc. So it seems a very unfair fight. Uh, and um, uh, we're still looking more on how to regulate uh, Facebook or Google as opposed to how to use some of these tools uh, to enhance democracy itself uh, and the citizens, of course. And so uh, as a software developer or engineer, the idea of hacking th stuff is a very uh, sort of natural approach to any problem. You look at whatever you're trying to fix and you find solutions around it. You open source your code because you benefit and the community benefits from that. And you understand the idea of decentralization, everything. So the whole idea of internet, we understand more as a set of principles rather than uh, a utility, as Professor Floridi said, uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's an idea of, a, of um, a philosophy rather than its own implementation. The fact that it gets applied to certain ways like corporations, Facebook, Google, is a secondary use of it. And my question or proposal to this, how can the same set of principles be applied within democracy, which is still set on four-year cycle elections, still on a very um, indirect representation, tackling with issues that are by far outgrown the capacity of this kind of decision making. And so as a final point on this, um, I mean, we are a lot more concerned about something like universal basic income, which just... Uh, fuddles these problems away, just, you know, it's all about the money rather than decisions. So why isn't it more about universal basic decision-making, for instance? Um, and uh, two key issues... I, as I'm, I'm going to stop you there. We're going to take the question on universal uh, basic decision-making. There, there were just two, two final points. Excuse me, just okay. one, one thing is about literacy. I think it's very critical for citizens to be able to navigate this space. And the second one, just proposing a set of open standards, just like when you go to the supermarket, you can buy free-range food or you can buy organic food, then you can buy for instance, open source technology or transparent technology, it being some kind of a label that people can adopt. And when they don't adopt it, it's a sort of stigma that is attached automatically. So thank you. Yeah, Luciano, yeah. Starting from the last one of the points, uh, literacy, and just in case uh, oh, you think I'm, I'm, I'm not the right kind of guy from, from that place, necessary, insufficient, that's what I mean. Necessary, of course, no. The more the better, insufficient to make a political difference today. I think you're very much right in highlighting something that I hope I'm not, I'm not misunderstanding. We, we move for a long, long time, I mean really long time, thinking that we are uh, political animals in terms of uh, always on, that politics is something that you live and breathe and eat 24-7. And that goes under the management of loyalty. So you build, for example, members of your party forever and try to grow that party and so on. That is way gone. I mean, some people in the Labour Party haven't quite realized that, but you know, it, it's, it's past. And it's simply historical transformation. In developed countries, where, uh, which are well off, politics moves from always on to on demand. Meaning that every now and then someone says, look, pay attention. It's not about loyalty management, it's attention management. Now we have a particular well-run sort of a way of doing that, and that's called marketing. Marketing is about attention management. And therefore, all of a sudden, we have this confusing picture, and I'm sorry if I'm trying to be too academic here, where politics has been hijacked by economics when it should be run by so social issues. Meanwhile, because politics has moved from always on to on demand, the means to handle that are marketing means. And we get confused about the marketization of politics, which is a quote-unquote a good thing, that's what you want to do, because that's what you want to have an expert about. 
handling, managing attention with, oh, but I don't want to have my politics run by economics. Absolutely. It should be social issues, not economic. Economics is one of the issues. But because of all this you know, intersection around the same node, we'll be confused about what is doing where exactly in the system. But once we start moving away from, oh, I have a large ba you know, base of members of my party, which is absolutely a joke, uh, and we said, no, look, you're not attracting the attention of the other 25 million people who have to vote tomorrow on this issue, loud, clear, not simple, well, we're not joining 21st century politics. And that's not all I have to say at the moment. Too long, sorry. Not too long at all, right. wonderful, no. wonderful. No. We, are, we are running perilously short of time, so I'm just gonna take, as long as you promise these questions are short, a lady in the blue just behind you. Hi, Catherine Quiet from Represent.me. We're a democracy and voting platform, and we're trying to do some of the things that you mentioned um, in between. So we've been talking a lot about campaigning, but not the five years in between every campaign and how that works. And we've also <coughs> talked a lot about um, democracy as if it's just very small moments rather than, and it's all about MPs or councillors rather than a full suite of things. So that's just an observation. Um, and we've also talked a lot about... Ooh, can we get to the question? So my question yeah. is... What was my question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that, that's you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a loyal user of represent.me, so it's, it's quite fun. Every couple of days yeah. it pops me a, a, a difficult political conundrum and I, I answer it. So I guess my question is... Um, how do we flip? So how many of you have actually read the manifestos and read what they've said about democracy? Each of the parties have said something about democracy. And how many of you actually wish to engage in those conversations about democracy in between elections? Okay, so quick round. To the, have you read any, any of the manifestos? Uh, no. No? I've read bits of the Labour one. That's that's about it. Right, kept the red flag flying there. Carol? No. No. Luciano? <laughs> what do you expect? Comparatively analyze them, each of them. <laughs> and that's the academic. I mean, I think they're professional. So no credit. Tom? Uh, I've let others read them and read the cliff notes. You've read the cliff notes. <laughs> Off you go. Wonderful. Okay, so um, anyone else for the burning question? Alice, up. Would you want to come up round to the front here? I'm Alice Thwaites. I run something called the Echo Chamber Club. So we've got a couple thousand subscribers who say they're liberal and progressive. And the one thing I've noticed is how much diversity there is in that group. And so it claims it's an echo chamber. Actually, it's so diverse. People don't actually have similar points of view. So my question is, what do you actually mean by democracy? Would you ever claim that a liberal democracy is broken? And would you ever, what would you push towards for the future? Because I think as a millennial, I'll say, um, there might be something in um, agonism, in an agnostic democracy. And if we're gonna talk about technology that's gonna build future democracies, then perhaps we should talk about first what that democracy should be. That's very similar to Catherine's point, but hmm. that's you my wanna, Do you wanna, you wanna well, come I'll back again? Oh, you'd love to, yeah. If I, if I, go, go for it. Yeah, yeah, please. So there are um, three definitions of democracy in the literature, and that's easy. So, can tell the professor all happy here. Uh, number one, uh, a country is run as a democracy of some kind according to a set of values that you establish. So it's a, a values-based understanding of democracy. If you not respect those values in that place, you're a democracy, you don't. The values can be a little bit not under discussion, but it's a value-based understanding. Understanding number two, it's not about values, it's about 
rules, procedures. So forget about the body. So there might be enlightenment, whatever, human rights. No, no, no. It's about, for example, um, rule of the law, uh, fairness. So it, it becomes a matter of uh, not what, but how you handle the... There's a third one, and I call it half, because it's actually yours dearly. Uh, so the third one, it says, it's not yet about values, it's not yet about rules. It's about a fundamental, essential separation between those who have power and those who exercise power. Sovereignty and governance. When the two mix, that's called a dictatorship of some kind, and it can be a dictatorship of the majority. That's why I'm against by all means, to end direct democracy. Direct democracy is exactly breaking that fundamental rule, which is at the very, very beginning of any democracy. Those who have power don't exercise it, and those who have power, they don't own it, not forever. So sovereignty and governance are separated. You delegate, and you take it back if you don't like it. What I'd like to do, just to ask the panelists for a brief 30-second summary it can be a summary, it can be an observation, it can be a joke. It's all um, to play for, Harry. Yeah, Over okay. to you first. Make and it, count. Yeah. Towards the end of the, the, the questions, I mean, people brought up some of the things on the horizon that really do keep me awake at night, which is artificial general intelligence, gene editing, climate change, these very big kind of black swanish things, these unprecedented things that are coming down towards us. and. My, I spend a lot of time at the moment thinking about how most of my political values are predicated on the notion of the value of human life and how the definition of human and human agency is going to come into play with some of these exponential technologies. And I think any, this is quite, this is quite abstract and this is quite esoteric in terms of the current political crisis we face, but any kind of solutions that we're we're proposing are going to have to reckon with these things sooner or later and i think certainly the stresses on our political system caused by resource scarcity climate change massive migrations that come out of climate change are as as the the, the woman said are going to um favor autocratic modes of governance and we have to be able to, to cope with that. Carol? Um, I just found that really interesting, your three definitions of democracy, and I think by that definition it's very clear that America is on that third path, and very scary things are happening in America, and the only point of optimism I see in that is that there are people like Stephanie who are going, this is really bad, and we haven't reached that point in Britain, and that's the thing that terrifies me, and so I just say, We've really got to start giving a shit. <laughs> That's my one thing I just would like people to sort of take away because one and two, those two definitions of democracy, we currently don't have in Britain because it's failed according to the values and it's failed according to the law. So, Luciano, your closing so, thoughts. Um, so I think that uh, we should keep uh, having this titanic effort as in the original Greek titanic, namely no matter whether we think we're going to be defeated, it's worth the effort anyway. Um, having said that, I think that if you look at human history, we normally change course of action deeply only after a major disaster. Now, you drop two, a couple of bombs on, on, on a couple of no, <coughs> seeds, atomic bombs, and then you start thinking, maybe that's not a good idea. So 
my fear is not that a major disaster will happen and then after that, for example, our whole country will be completely hijacked by a social media, almost there. Uh, it's not that a disaster will happen and will change course, but the disaster that is going to happen, say, for example, at the, uh, we didn't discuss this today, but at the global warming, at the sort of environmental level, is irreversible. <coughs> and then there will not be time to say, they were right in their room when we have that discussion. So let's make sure that we warn everybody that something is deeply wrong and shouldn't be happening as we speak. Because at least one day we'll say, we told you so. Tom, closing statement. Uh, I'm too tired to be short. <laughs> go for uh, it. Have a go. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I know from having worked inside the system that the system is more malleable to pressure than it appears on the outside. Uh, and so please carry on. Please carry on. And everyone else, I, I think the points that are raised around um, you can hack this democracy thing based around values or based on your opinion if you're progressive or not, whatever. Uh, you can show another way, uh, you can, and sometimes that works. I also agree with the point around things really only change quickly when there's real pressure, when there's a war, when there's a catastrophe. It's made me remember something Tom Steinberg, who's a, a, a brilliant friend of mine, once said, which was the best thing that could maybe happen to our democracy was Facebook gets hacked and 100 million marriages are broken up. <laughs> because that would change the weather. Uh, and um, having come out of this, I'm kind of hoping for the death of 100 million marriages. <laughs> Hopefully not mine. I'm not on Facebook, well, by the way. Thank you. It's been a great, uh, great evening, and I know people will probably have their heads full like, like mine are. Just a few notes. Um, do go and pick up a copy of Harry's book, White Tears, which we're selling, or Primrose Hill Books are selling in the corner. Big thank you to Shanaz for putting the programming together and to our panelists, Harry Kunju, Carol Luciano <laughs> and Tom Lucemore. Thank you very much. That brings us to an end of what was a fantastic panel discussion. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well and hopefully we'll see you at one of our events at some point in the near future.